Roger Moore returns to the role of 007 in director Guy Hamilton's fourth and final Bond outing from 1974. This time, in one of the strangest and most over-the-top adventures yet, James Bond must contend with an elite and elusive hitman, played by the brilliant Christopher Lee, known only as the Man with the Golden Gun. Good evening, 003. The following is for your ears only and is classified above top secret by Her Majesty's Secret Service. Our contact with the We Can Make This Work, probably, podcast network intercepted an encrypted audio message regarding podcasters assembled. For this season, the podcast network is looking to recruit field operatives from around the world to reminisce about the Bond movies and a countdown to the latest film in the franchise, No Time to Die. Your primary objective is to infiltrate podcasters assembled by recording and uploading your submissions at probablywork.com. Utilizing a two-way communications device with a built-in microphone, the latest from QBranch. For a full mission report, go to probablywork.com. We're all counting on you, 003. Podcasters, assemble. Yo, this is Corey Torgerson, photographer, film nut, and podcast hopper. This is Justin Aki, graphic designer and one half of Significant Otter Co. I'm Megan, the other half of Significant Otter Co. This is Troidal Power from the Power Playthroughs Podcast. Eric Slater here from Epic Fails of History. Today we will be reviewing James Bond and The Man with the Golden Gun. 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 gun. 1974's The Man with the Golden Gun is the ninth 007 film and is based on the final James Bond novel by Ian Fleming, which was published shortly after his passing in 1965. This movie is a tough one for me because the thing I remember about it is just the golden gun, and that's because I was way more familiar with GoldenEye's multiplayer on the N64 than I was with this movie as a kid. Man, I thought Diamonds Are Forever was bad. This is somehow worse. Before I rewatched this movie, I bemoaned this movie, thinking it was the worst James Bond movie in the franchise. The Man with the Golden Gun is longer than any of the Lord of the Rings movies, yet is still only two hours. I take it back. It's not a terrible film, but it's not a good film. This is entirely due to a lot of scenes where nothing is really happening, or the scene is truly not moving the film forward. It's not the worst thing I've ever seen. Like, you know... We all know about the golden gun mode on the Golden Knight, right? One shot, one kill. Uh, I thought the gun was super powered. It turns out that it's just the guy's really good. So that golden gun mode on the Nintendo 64 doesn't actually make any sense. I guess I want to start by pointing out that Christopher Lee should have been Bond. In fact, I think it might be shifting the worst Bond film to Moonraker, but that remains to be seen. It's a few movies away. Even though the movie around him doesn't live up to his standards, he's still great. Christopher Lee was actually friends with Ian Fleming and is considered to be one of the main inspirations for Bond through his real-life adventures as a spy working against the Nazis during World War II. I gotta admit, I do really like the gun barrel sequence in this one. Each one of these has a slight variation. I think this one is one of the best so far. The music and visuals are just on point. I do appreciate the fact that the cold open for this movie doesn't focus on Bond. So Christopher Lee's island in Thailand, I think it is, is incredible. Instead, we open with the most ill-dressed Chicago gangster playing laser tag in a creepy funhouse, 
with what looks like actual stuffed people, including other gangsters, a cowboy, and a fake James Bond. Despite this being one of my least favorite Bond movies, that is one of the coolest locales in the entire series. We also get a first look at the Bond girl, Andrea Anders, played by a very attractive Maud Adams. The cold opening on the island that we eventually find out is Scaramanga's home. Scaramanga's house in the intro is awesome. His place is so nice. He's got this like private island that's got these like really ornate rooms built inside of it. I want to live there. Uh, when you walk into it, you see like this cool living room. It's got a big built-in bar behind him. And then you go through a doorway into like an exercise weightlifting room, which has a bar built in behind it. Scaremonger's also got a cool boat that's got like this bar built into it. I think Scaramanga might be an alcoholic. Is my favorite villain moment because we get introduced to Knickknack. Finally, we get to meet Tattoo, I mean Knickknack. And you think he's going behind his boss's back to try and murder him, but instead we learn how just sick and twisted Scaramanga is and how much Knickknack enjoys being a part of it. So, Scaramanga's midget friend hired a mobster to try and kill him as a test? I adore Knickknack. Debon, Debon! He's just the right mix of bad guy and comic relief. I think every time he popped up, I just kept thinking in my head, okay, what kind of trouble are we going to get into now? He was a lot of fun. Of note, the gangster guy has a silencer, but apparently it sucks, because all I hear is his gun going off. Wait, Scaramanga has a Roger Moore Bond mannequin? The opening with Scaramanga's Island is awesome, but they don't really explain anything. After the gangster gets killed by Christopher Friggin' Lee, who already looks old as he is in Lord of the Rings, we get one of the worst James Bond theme songs ever. The man with the golden gun. It's terrible and I hate it. The theme song on this one is not my favorite from a lyrics perspective. There are a lot of naked people in the opening credits though. But the sound of it is outstanding. I mean, it's like Shirley Bassey working with wings. You've taken the best of Goldfinger's theme song and the best of Live and Let Die's theme song and you've shoved them together and made a song that sounds really good. We also get a super close-up on the named Golden Gun, which looks like it has the worst ergonomics ever. It's straight edge, tiny for a six foot six man's big hand. It's a fun gun though. I like that he can smuggle it into places. But it does talk about how love is required whenever he's hired, and it comes just before the kill. So the cute gadget in this one is a fake nipple? The film starts with showing our primary villain's superpower as a third nipple. This movie starts out insane and just gets weirder and weirder. That being said, this movie is pretty bonkers. Uh, I don't have anything I would change for this movie, but I do have to add the silliness of the names in this movie. The briefing at the start of this movie is pretty fun because M is throwing a lot of shade at Bond. He's basically removing him from his assignment he's on, which is to like find some solar energy expert uh, because they think that Scaramanga's after him. And uh, Bond's like, well, I'll go hunt him down. And M's like, well, I can't officially tell you to do that. Wink. And then M's like, but hey, do keep in mind that it might be hard to find this guy because nobody knows where he is, what he looks like. He's going to have a leg up on you in that regard. Anyway, Bond goes on a world tour, including pre-Civil War Lebanon, Macau, and then Hong Kong. So Bond goes to Hong Kong for a good chunk of the movie. 
where Bond meets the second female lead of the movie, Goodnight. I completely believe that Scaramanga had no other choice but to be a bad guy. There's no way to say his name and make him sound like he's a kind and generous soul. Scaramanga. Andrea Anders? That's just like a throwaway name there. Even M knows that Bond is a terrible spy. He's like, dude, don't introduce yourself everywhere you go and sleep with everyone you meet. Have a little bit of discretion. And this little rant on names would not be complete without good night. Seriously? I don't like her as much as Maud. I will say, she ends up being on the same scale as other Bond girls. So solid, smart, and efficient until she falls for Bond, then she becomes a complete blabbering idiot. I think these are the least interesting Bond women so far. I love Maud Adams as Andrea Anders. She's super attractive, has goals, but is shown as like a beaten woman. The belly dancer in Beirut, I don't know, man. If I was with someone and they got shot to death, I don't know if I would keep the bullet that killed them around as a lucky charm. That seems rather unlucky. She's in trouble and a kept woman, but still pushes forward. I'm going to make a blanket statement for this film because it does not merit a rewatch for specificity. This has to be the single rapiest, creepiest Bond film. If there is a man and a woman in the room, the woman probably doesn't want to be there. I hate that it's kind of a foregone conclusion that he'll end up sleeping with both of them by the end of the movie. I like to joke about the overt sexual nature of Bond films, even where the minimal forced romances make no sense. Man with the Golden Gun also has one of the cringiest scenes between Bond and a woman. However, to reference another film, the producers are Ash, the bleeding manliness is the porno mag, and we, the viewers, are Ripley. Agent Goodnight gets such a raw deal in this movie. Her introduction right away, she shows that she's competent because Bond is like, oh my god, we've got to go after that car. And she's like, what kind of car was it? And he's like, it's a green Rolls Royce. And she's like, man, every green Rolls Royce on this dang island belongs to the same hotel. Trust me, I got this. She's totally cool. She's totally calm. She's totally competent. And then Bond tries to woo her and he's like, oh, do you want to have sex with me? And she's like, no, I don't. I don't want to have sex with you. So you're like, all right, cool, competent, immune to Bond's wiles, and then immediately she shows up in this hotel room, like literally the next scene, and she's like, hey, you want to have sex now? And he's like, well, I would, but there's this other girl I have to have sex with, so I'm just going to shove you into a closet and make you sit here and listen to us have sex all night. Fun! I kind of hate that I want the villain to win in this one, but there's just so much about Bond that's unlikable. I don't necessarily blame Roger Moore either. I think a lot of it's just bad writing. But seriously, 4.2mm gun is equivalent to like a 1.7 caliber bullet. In the US, that's basically a step above pellet gun. Seriously. Let's just pretend the gun is almost a 22. That's a tiny, tiny, tiny gun. So good on Scaramanga for being able to kill people from blocks away with it. That's true talent. Anyway. Bond ends up outside of a topless bar, which really existed, the Bottoms Up Club. In regards to a lot of filler content, I still don't understand why we needed to see inside Bottoms Up. This movie was rated PG back then. Hell yeah. When both the lieutenant and the solar energy dude could have been introduced outside of the building when he was assassinated. Oh, and a 4.2mm bullet made of 23 karat gold? That thing has to be so soft. Good luck if anybody has any body armor. This point of filler is only re-emphasized during the introduction to Lieutenant Hip's nieces, 
who only served to later upset the status quo by completely taking over an action sequence. But after Bond gets arrested, he ends up in the best secret base ever. Okay, we need to talk about the derelict ship. Favorite vehicle? I'm going to go a little unconventional, even though there are some really nice looking cars in this movie. Uh, I love the RMS Queen Elizabeth. I couldn't believe my eyes. The sunken wreck of the Queen Mary in Hong Kong Harbor. They actually did it. While it has no fancy moves, the idea of using an eyesore shipwreck as your top secret headquarters is the best example of hiding in plain sight. So, to date, M not only has a random office on a submarine, he also just so happens to have one on a half-sunken ship. I love the little details, like they added extra steps and slanted floors to match the tilt of the ship. It, I mean, yeah, it was a really impressive set, but like... I have so many questions. Bond then is super weird and asks for Q for something a little kinky and then ends up in Thailand. Couldn't they have just like hauled out the interior of the ship and, you know, made like a normal horizontal base? Instead, it's like everything's on this crazy ass Dutch tilt, like the layer of a Batman villain from the 60s TV series. Absolutely nuts. Also, James being a know-it-all ass comes up in the scene, with Bond laying out, by rote memory, every fact that someone knows about Scaramanga to the nth degree, including a third nipple. I took a note at the one hour mark of the movie about how few notes I have. Something else that comes up in this movie I noticed. Compared to the past Bonds, Connor and Lazenby, Moore doesn't smoke cigarettes, he smokes cigars. He smoked one or two in his first outing, but honestly, I think I counted like five cigars in this movie. Man knows how to have a good time. For all you anime nerds, they really should have just named this Snake Way the movie. Bond then pretends to be Scaramanga with some oh, throwaway CEO character with the weirdest garden ever. But surprise, Scaramanga's already there. He then comes back later on that night and ends up fighting some sumo statue characters. May I remind the Japanese sumo people that they are in Thailand. Plus, TikTok or whatever his name is acts as a creepy statue. And it is once again playing by that Let's Not Kill Bond playbook. They toss him out in the next scene, this time placing him in a freaking karate jojo in Thailand. What's up with that karate scene? The sword duel in the dojo is more convincing than almost any Bond fight ever filmed. For an exhibition, they sword fight some guy to the death for like no reason at all. The best kill for me is part of the kung fu slash karate scene, when Bond kicks the guy in the face when he bows. That's just a Bond way to do things. Like, hey, I agree you captured me, I'll play along for a bit so you don't shoot me, but I'm not going to do everything. Then, Bond gets his ass kicked, even though I thought he was originally a judo expert. This scene felt like forced racial and gender diversity, and as Bond was standing around doing nothing while others fought for his escape, I couldn't help but glance at my watch again. Meanwhile, the Hong Kong agent that has helped Bond has his nieces with him that are freaking anime schoolgirls, and they kick ass and end up leaving Bond on a boat chase. Which is funny because they just like drive off. But because of course it's a Bond movie, it needs a solid boat chase. This movie continues the tradition established, um, I guess in On Majesty's Secret Service is where we really started getting the chase scenes in the Bond movies. We've got two good ones in this. One is a boat chase scene where Bond is going through Thailand? Oh, I should know this. Uh, but he's going through the canals and jumping from boat to boat and there's a little kid and 
I do like that the kid jumps from boat to boat trying to sell a wood elephant for like a hundred baht, which is about 25 bucks in today's money. Bond tells the kid that he'll give him a bunch of money if he can fix the engine. But then Bond convinces the kid to tell him how a boat works. Bond, a commander in the British Navy. And then when the kid fixes the engine, Bond just pushes him out of the boat instead of paying him. That's shitty because Bond is a terrible person. Anyway, Bond scams the kid out of like $5,104 in today's money. Uh, and then, of course, just to make sure that we don't totally hate Bond, they give us a worse person. But we get to see J.W. Pepper being super racist. So that redneck sheriff from Live and Let Die, he shows up in this movie. I was very glad to see the return of J.W. Pepper. Yep, J.W. J.W. Pepper. He's he's back, baby, and he's just as... He's even more racist, if anything, than he, than he was last time. Boy, howdy. While watching the increasingly dull boat race scene, I was thinking to myself, you know what this film needs? A bunch of racist slurs to spice things up. He just so happens to be on vacation there at the same time as Bond. By the way, I realized the last movie was very pressing in the relations of the U.S. right now, but I had to look up when the Democratic Party switched from conservative Southerners to liberal policies, and the Dixiecrats were a real thing. Let's never pretend J.W. Pepper was a non-racist perkins back in the 70s, but hearing he was a legitimate dis- Democrat was disconcerting. I mean, the man was calling everyone pointy heads and goonie birds. I'm not sure that's politically correct. Anytime. Favorite weapon? I'm gonna keep it simple. I really like the golden gun. It's effective, it's portable, it's simple, it's just pretty much a badass gun. And it doesn't hurt that it's the namesake of the movie. Also, the song, and based on the entire first quarter of the movie, states that Scaramanga gets a million dollars per kill. In 2020 prices, that's like $5,200,689.66. That's not terrible per shot, even if you consider the value in gold today, each bullet is a minimum of $88, plus whatever the casing and gunpowder costs. So, someone has paid that to kill James Bond. That scene with Scaramanga assembling his gun and killing the guy who hired him was great. There's a great throwaway line by M after Bond asks who would pay for it, and jealous husbands come up. Hilarious. My favorite 007 moment is not a spy moment, it's a womanizing moment. Bond is about to hook up with Goodnight because she has the constitution of wet paper. I mean, she shut him down like 20 minutes before, and bam, now she's half naked in his bed. But no, Maud Adams comes by to warn him, and Goodnight has to sleep in the closet. That's just friggin' rude. Also, every shot in this section of the movie was shot like a 1970s soap opera. Three camera setup and everything. Because ping pong back and forth, back and forth. Favorite kill. Andrea Anders um, at the Muay Thai match. During the fighting ring sequence, I finally took my first positive note. I do enjoy Scaramanga as a villain. He is reminiscent of Goldfinger and that he only wants his one thing, but otherwise would rather be left alone and go unnoticed. It literally took me 20 minutes to realize that she is Octopussy in a later film. I'm assuming there's a ton of fanfiction that lays out how she actually lived in this movie and went on to be a leader of assassins somewhere down the line. The fact that she is dead in the middle of a crowded arena is so shocking. It's too bad how she died, but she made a very pretty living corpse. And I just am waiting for the moment when someone finds out. Then we cut to the second chase in the movie, a car chase with American left-hand drive cars in Thailand, even though cop cars were wrong. So in the second chase scene, which is a car chase, 
uh, Bond ends up in a car with J.W. Pepper. Something about having J.W. in any kind of chase just makes him to this kind of Benny Hill montage. WTF. Why is he a main character now? Because I guess he was shopping for cars while he was on vacation, and Bond steals the car from the dealership, and J.W. Pepper happens to be in it, and he's like, oh boy, I know you, you're that secret agent, man. I'm gonna help you out because I'm on a mission to save the world and stuff because I'm J.W. Pepper. I do like the fact that he ends up joining James Bond on a mission and has a friggin' wallet full of certification on how he's a sheriff of the worst parish in Louisiana. After Bond didn't kick JW out of the car, I realized even Gordon Ramsay would hate this movie. There is just too much pepper. I'm specifically calling out this film as a platform for advertising. First off, American Motors Corporation ruined Harley Davidson back in the day, but let's admit there were a ton of AMC cars in this movie. I also seriously deep dived into tracking down why there would have been a freaking American car dealership in Thailand in 1974, and no, there were no dealerships. I did find a listing for an agent that was in-country at the time, mostly for manufacturing purposes, but even then, why the hell would J.W. Pepper be test-driving a car when he's on vacation? And he's still racist and awful, but the chase scene's pretty fun. I don't usually enjoy the car chases, but this one was pretty epic. It had Bond, it had Scaramanga, there was J.W. from the last movie, and even Goodnight. Bond ends up getting like the entire like police department of the country is in chasing after him uh, as he chases after Scaramanga's car. But the best part of this is where they just like shamelessly rip off Dukes of Hazard. I was already upset by his existence in Live and Let Die, but I don't understand how you can bring in a character who already barely exists within your universe and somehow undevelop him. Because what happens is Scaramanga crossed a bridge. Bond doesn't realize it. And then he realized it and he's like, oh man, how am I going to get over there? There's no bridges here, but there's a ramp. <laughs> oh my God. And so Bond does this sweet trick where he like reverses way back, gets a head start, a running start up to the ramp, goes up it, but it's a slanted wrap. So the car does a barrel roll in the air and then lands on the other side. And it's fantastic. That bridge jump where the car flips over and there's a kazoo sound effect. Except they put in a damn slide whistle. Like, as the car's flipping, goes... That was a terrible slide whistle. But you know what a slide whistle sounds like. Why do they do that? It's just... It's so cool. And then there's a slide whistle. Where the hell they got to? You goof, boy. God damn! What's that? What's going on? What the hell are you doing now, boy? Bridge is that way! You're not thinking that. I sure am, boy. Never heard of evil can evil. Neither have I, actually. I don't even think the Dukes of Hazard did anything quite that crazy. But it's some decent driving, a dumb JW, and then a flying car. Wait, Scaramanga's car? No. No care. You gotta be kidding me. Scaramanga ends up escaping back to his island because his car 
has wings. That's right, he gets wings attached to his car and he flies away, which is okay, whatever, sure, I guess. So I'm not going to fault this movie for that flying car because I would totally ride in that. Scaramanga's car turns into a plane? Holy crap, and it was practical. They had to bolt things together and everything. Uh, But I will fault it for those extremely extended scenes of the flying car. Um, And this is where we find out that, like, uh, he's got the girl. Well, we know he's got the girl in the trunk, but Bond's like, I'm going to go after her. Like, not only to get the solar agitator, whatever the hell that thing is, Bond is like, I got to save the girl. That's what I do. I'm James Bond. And I didn't have sex with her yet. Actually, while I was watching, I was wondering how much of a distance they can go on the gas tank they had. But they did list out in the movie he only had about 200 miles. Goodnight was stuck in the trunk and everything. So that thing was a little way down. So... I guess what they're going for here is that Christopher Lee is like an evil Bond. He's a Bond for hire. And his gadgets are actually a lot cooler. I mean, (laughs) a flying car is a thousand times cooler than a fake nipple. Also, what's up with the third nipple thing? Like, really? Cut to the end game of the movie. Apparently Red China hides Scaramanga for random acts of war, and he gets a private island with three people on it. Turns out that Scaramanga is a very green villain. He's got this elaborate, like, solar power plant going on. Meanwhile, the power plant he runs can explode for literally no reason. So he heads to Scaramanga's island. Um, He gets welcomed, like, oh, we're so glad to have you here. Let me introduce you to my evil plot. I think everyone's going to say the golden gun is the best gadget in the movie, but I think the best gadget was a Solex. Because apparently it's magic. It can do better than any other solar collection device on the planet. It can even convert heat into laser energy. Yeah, that's the best thing. The Golden Gun wasn't ergonomic, wasn't convenient, and was only useful in multiplayer Goldeneye. I think my wife called it out best when Scaramanga was given Bond a tour of the whole island. And he's like, oh, it's just me and Knickknack. And then suddenly, there's just a black dude working. Like, you forgot that guy? Does he get to eat with you guys? I mean, how's that work? Although, he was, like, super rapey, so maybe that's why you don't eat with him. Anyway, Scaramanga turns out to be a psychopath. He keeps a good night in a bikini. She's about to get it from the safety guy in the power plant, even if she doesn't want it. But Bond outsparts Scaramanga and blows up the base. I love Scaramanga's whole pistols at dawn thing. This is, like, half an hour before the movie ends, and it finally explains that what's happening is that Scaramanga was killing a guy who ran a company that made solar energy so that he could become the guy who's in charge of all the solar energy for all the world. Part of that is he introduces the solar-powered gun, and he's like, I guess now I really am the man with the golden gun. Do you get it, James Bond? Do you get it? But he also just really likes killing people, and he thinks he and James are the same. He's like, we both get joy from killing. Let's try to kill each other. Won't that be fun? High five. And then they do a duel. So Bond and Christopher Lee do like a 10 paces old western style duel except Christopher Lee decides to run away and hide in his spooky funhouse mirrors death trap alright that's a little weird I'm not going to get into the whole duel scene they go all over the island they go in his crazy funhouse and stuff and James Bond ends up beating him again by pretending to be a statue what I do want to talk about is that Scaramanga cheats from the very beginning because the expectation that James Bond was given of how this duel is going to go is they were going to stand back to back, they were going to take 20 paces, and then they were going to turn and fire. And they did their 20 paces, and Bond turned and fired, which wasted one of his bolts in his gun. And where's Scaramanga? Freaking nowhere, because he cheated and did not do the paces as he was supposed to, and instead ran off to hide in his crazy funhouse. He's a cheating assassin. He's a bad man. 
I love the whole side plot of Knickknack running the Funhouse Shooting Gallery because I can see him thinking he can survive on that island without Scaramanga. Hey, we've reached my second positive note of this film. And of course, it's at the very end. So ultimately, Roger Moore, I mean Bond, um, poses as the life-size Bond mannequin in order to get the drop on Scaramanga. At the beginning of the film, we are shown a likeness of Bond, a perfect likeness of Bond that Scaramanga blows the four fingers off of. So, of course, at the end, that is where Bond is standing because it is the one thing Scaramanga would never expect. That's some pretty solid foreshadowing, and I'm glad at least one thing in this movie paid off. Man, they built a whole funhouse by importing every single element. That seems tedious. Absolute best death in the movie is that guy falling off into the cryovats. I mentioned before that Goodnight really gets the shaft in this movie, and she gets it here again too, because as uh, they are trying to uh, escape from the island, well, first, she's the one who causes them to need to escape, because she kills her captor, way to go, uh, but she kills him by knocking him into one of the coolant tanks for the solar reactor. What's up with all these super dangerous villain bases without railings? Which I guess, as soon as that goes above absolute zero, the whole island's gonna blow, and there's no way to stop that, so that seems flawed. Maybe they should put, like, a net over the tank or something. You're telling me that if someone falls in an open tank with no safety rails, the whole plant will explode? That's the best design you can come up with? You couldn't think of anything else? Oh my god. <laughs> but anyway, so she's causing the whole island to blow up. And then as Bond's trying to get the solar agitator out of the machinery, she pushes a button with her butt. Isn't it funny that she pushes a button with her butt? <laughs> she was established as a competent character. And then they just ruined her. Why did they do this? So the movie ends with Bond beating the villain, as always. As is tradition, everything is now blowing up. The island goes boom. And Bond is attempting to get the plot device out of the container. So, like any good spy, he grabs the nearest tool and starts beating on the cover like one of the apes from 2001 A Space Odyssey. So they escape from the island, and Bond's in a boy's gonna have sex with a woman to end the movie, but then Knickknack's there, and we have to have a fight scene with Knickknack. But it doesn't end with the Bond girl on the boat right away. No, we get to see Knickknack destroy a cabin and pour glass over everything. It is a miracle that Knickknack has lived this long. Anyone who holds a knife in their mouth like that has a very short life expectancy. Well, Bond puts him inside of a suitcase, which is really degrading and kind of awful. When Bond put Knickknack in the suitcase before being strung up with a quartermass like a pirate, it suddenly dawned on me that this film is almost completely devoid of humor. This is really the first scene where I felt like I could laugh at something. And then Goodnight's like, did you kill him? And Bond's like, yep, sure did. But we find out he didn't really kill him. He just hung him from the mast of the ship where he will die a long, slow death of exposure to the sun. That's just cruel, Bond. Why did you do that? As Bond lays back in bed with Goodnight. After a terrible midget fight scene. Keep in mind, Knickknack just threw a lot of bottles of wine that broke in and around the bed. Oh, and when he's about to have sex with Goodnight, M calls him and he's like, hang on, let me get her. And then she's like, ah, and he's like, she's just coming, sir. That bed is covered in glass. And once again, we have Bond on a boat with a girl. Credits.
You know, after that movie, we're lucky that there's still a Bond franchise. I do think that the contemporary elements, which we know that Bond movies always take from the world around them at the time, is pretty on point for what is truly going on at the time, and even now. The movie revolves around the energy crisis that was going on in the 1970s. We also had an entire kung fu craze going on. This movie just slams that crap together and adds in a very hot Bond girl, and that's a very contemporary Bond movie. I don't know, man. Man with a Golden Gun was pretty fun. Um, it's not the best movie in the world. It's it's a convoluted movie as far as the plot goes, because it's like, is this a assassination story? Is this a spy story? You're not really sure what the actual villainous plot that Bond's stopping is. But Sierra Manga, I think, is kind of an interesting villain. Just a guy who's, like, as good at killing as Bond, but does it for money and getting his rocks off, apparently, because he comes just before the kill. Um, but mostly what this movie establishes for me is it, it will not establish this because we all already knew it just re-solidifies for me that James Bond is a terrible, terrible human being. He's the worst. He kills Knick-Knack in the most inhumane way possible. He forces Goodnight to listen to him have sex with another woman and then coerces her into having sex with him. He's just, he's awful. I don't like James Bond. He threatens to shoot a guy in the balls who's like, a legitimate businessman. Sure, his business is making guns, but he's that's just he's just an artist and like he's a craftsman and James Bond's like, hey, I'm gonna shoot you in the testicles now. What the hell, James Bond? Thankfully the next movie has to be better, right? James Bond will return in The Spy Who Loved Me. Like <laughs> I vaguely remember The Spy Who Loved Me as being a halfway decent movie, but I don't remember this movie being this bad, so fingers crossed. Podcasters Assemble Season 003 is a production of the We Can Make This Work Probably Podcast Network. Find more of our shows at probablywork.com and learn how to contribute to future episodes of Podcasters Assemble by looking us up on Twitter at Casters Assemble or joining our Discord server, link in the show notes. Submissions are always open. Thank you to everyone who was able to contribute to this episode. Be sure to check the show notes for links where you can find them all online. Thank you. This has been a presentation of the We Can Make This Work Probably Network. Follow us on Twitter at Probably Work for more of our questionable content. Also, we have a website called ProbablyWork.com. The man with the golden gun. Podcasters Assemble will return in The Spy Who Loved Me.